Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. No matter when we went out, on our outer garments, and they couldn't be pinned on, they had to be stitched on so that we could never take it off. It's 1942. Regine Archer is 17 years old, she's a Jew in Belgium, and the Nazis have invaded her hometown. We looked up and there were two SS officers standing in the doorframe. Regine's world was turned upside down. Her family went into hiding, they lived off of rations, and were aided by an underground resistance. But I can assure you we were scared. But we somehow, the grace of God, we, we made it through. Regine hid in a convent for two years, where only the mother superior knew her true identity. You never know how happy we were when the Americans came. I mean, it was a joy that I can't can't even describe. Regine and her family braced for Nazi Germany's descent on her life in Belgium, a time in which they tenaciously fought to stay alive and preserve their way of life. That was then. Now, Regine makes time to tell her story to those willing to listen. There are good and bad people everywhere, and you have to try to just influence people to, to think the best of everybody else. I'm Leanna Scacchetti. I'm a reporter with WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. And Hometown Stories will guide you through the Blue Ridge Mountains and into the heart of Virginia. We'll introduce you to the characters of our Commonwealth, some of whom traversed oceans to get here. This story is one of them. This is Regine Archer's Hometown Story. Once in a while, a local museum in Salem, Virginia hosts events like this one. Well before the event kicks off, it's a full house. This museum actually used to be a home built in the mid-1800s. It's a pretty two-story brick building that's been moved and added to over time. Now, it's got an array of photos, art, books, and artifacts related to local history. And luckily, every once in a while, history also gets a voice. It was that good. I'm, I'm delighted I get to hear it twice. I'm more of a lucky one. That's Fran Ferguson. She's the curator of this museum. She's buying time to give people a chance to make their way inside. Regine Archer was actually scheduled to tell her story for just one night this week. But so many people came out, they had to turn some people away. Regine agreed to do her presentation a second night. Some people have brought notepads. Others bring their children. Staff are scrambling for every seat they can fit. And by 7 p.m. on this Tuesday, it's standing room. So, um, I think that's probably enough for me, and I'll turn it over to you. I, I want to thank you for being here. I can't imagine this many people for the second day showing up for my story, which is pretty old by now. And uh, it's, uh, 
it's geared to all the young people in this crowd who uh, may, may be one alive during the course of World War II. Regine is a petite woman and she's very well put together. Her lips and her nails are bright red tonight. She's up at the front of this modest room where the evening light is flooding in. As she's preparing for night two, one of her sons sets up a camera in the back and her daughter up front has a big map of Europe to put on the wall beside her mother. Regine's got my microphone clipped to her, as well as a mic from another TV station, plus she's speaking into a mic stand. And at various moments throughout the night, she's really not quite sure what to do with them. I have this mic too. Yes. I'm wired all over the place, but I need a mic. Regine's humor warms the crowd and will continue to do so throughout the night. She speaks softly, but clearly, and from the top, her voice just captivates the room. In uh, 1933, or maybe a little before that, Hitler started his powerful rise in Germany. A few years later, he, he invaded the Sudetenland, which was a part of Czechoslovakia, with the excuse that the people in that section of Czechoslovakia were German-speaking people, and, and they belonged to Germany. Uh, the British and the French were not very happy about this, but they just appeased them a little bit, hoping he would stop. Regine begins talking about the start of what would eventually become World War II. She was originally born in Poland, but brought to Belgium when she was a little girl. Her family lived in the city of Liège, and by 1940, she's a 15-year-old girl. And at this point in her life, Regine and her younger sister Jacqueline are in a college prep school. I have one sister a year and a half younger than I am. And she's very pleased to always tell people that she's younger than I am. <laughs> Regine is a good student, too. She speaks French, German, and English, and she studies Latin. Life was fairly normal, though still recovering from World War I. But Belgium was on edge as the Germans crept increasingly close to their hometown. Then suddenly, on September 1, 1939, the Germans invaded Poland. And this scandal was a cake. The French and the British couldn't take it, and they declared war. Belgium did have a small army, and its leaders were really trying to remain neutral. But Regine says they started getting word of the ghettos and concentration camps in Poland. Her family, Jewish of course, was getting really nervous. They lived just 25 miles from the German border. So they decided that if anything happened, they'd rent a house in Mons, near the French border. Then, on May 10, 1940, everything changed. Regine's family woke up to the sound of airplanes and anti-aircraft. They knew what was happening. As they looked out their front windows onto one of Liège's main roads, people were streaming in from East Germany. We kept watching all these people coming, and they were on foot, they were on bicycles, they were on carts. You'd see older people even being moved in wheelbarrows. And my mother was looking at my father and the rest of the family. We wanted all, wanted all to move to Mons, and some of them did. My mother refused to leave. She kept saying, if we leave our home, we're going to be just like these people in the street. And she said, I'd rather stay here and not and take a chance. 
Regine's mother refused to go anywhere for another two or three days. And on one of those nights, her mom had just started dinner. She was resolved to stay. She was going about life as normally as they had been. Regine says she starts making dinner. She remembers she had a chicken on the stove. But then they got word that the last train for Brussels was leaving the next day. Her mother gave in, they packed up, and hurried for the train station. The distance between Liège and Brussels is about 60 miles. Regine says normally, it would take you about an hour to get there. But she said German planes were strafing their train the whole way. I had to look that word up. It's a type of repeated attack with machine gun fire from low-flying aircraft. So on this day, the trip took from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. until they arrived in Brussels. The central station was total pandemonium. There were people from everywhere trying to go somewhere, and there were no more trains to go anywhere. They spent the night at her parents' friend's house. She and her sister Jacqueline, as any teenager is likely to do, listened in on the adult conversations. The general consensus between her parents and an aunt and uncle was to head west for the coast and then try to find a boat to take them to England. Keep in mind that cars were totally useless because gasoline ran out and it wouldn't be available. And if you had a car, you'd have to abandon it on the side of the road. So you took whatever conveyances you could find. In some places, there were still some small trains or something, but the rest of the time, you walked. So that's what they did. They walked all the way to the coast. Regine says sometimes they would hitch a ride with a truck. They really were refugees, and the whole time, they're being attacked by the Germans. They were trying to get rid of the civilian population because they had equipment, you know, as they were advancing in the country, they wanted it to be clear so that they could come. We would hit the ditches when the planes would come. One day my sister landed in a ditch next to a dead soldier. And we just, we went to a little old cemetery one day just to, we were right by there to sit down and rest. It was a dead soldier in another ditch. I mean, it, which is terrible, things we had never seen and had to deal with. Their trek would take them to Ostend, past Bruges, right on the coast. But when they get there, no boats. So they decided to take another train to La Pont, France. By then, the Belgian army had capitulated. France was mad, and they couldn't get through the border. So they decide to go through the dunes. My daughter's directing me. <laughs> okay, can you hear me? That's Regine's daughter jumping in, reminding her to speak into the mic stand. Were you walking? We were walking most of the time. It's all you could do. You had nothing to, to take you anywhere. We had no food. You would come through small villages where there'd be bakeries and there would be a line waiting for the bakery to produce some loaves of bread, which they did in small quantities. If you were far down the line, by the time you got to the door, all the bread was gone. So I remember one day we had a half a loaf of gingerbread and a can of sardines, and that was for six people. 
but we passed a number of farmhouses and many of the farmers' wives would have great big kettles of soup cooking away in the front of the yard and you could, you could help yourself and they would help you and give you some soup. We slept in barns. We just managed the best we could. They keep going like that until they get to Calais, a big harbor town. It's being bombed night and day. Regine says she and her family took shelter in a basement of a municipal building, which had been designated as an air raid shelter. While they're down there, they hear that the Germans have encircled the entire area and that there was no use in going further south. It's at that time that Regine's aunt and uncle, who were traveling with them, leave Calais. For six months, Regine's family has no idea what happened to them. Eventually, they get word from the Geneva Red Cross that her aunt and uncle had made it to England, and they spent the war in Liverpool. Regine's family, on the other hand, decide to go back to Belgium. They head north toward Dunkirk. En route, they come across an estuary where a bridge has been blown out while people were still on it. There was a couple there, and the lady was holding a scarf up, and she said, this is all I have left of my daughter. And uh, there was no bridge, there was no way to cross, and suddenly all the fishermen in that area brought their, their boats side by side from one side of the estuary to the other, and we all jumped from one boat to the other to get to the other side. And that wasn't very easy either, but we made it. When they arrive at Dunkirk, there are torpedoes all over the beaches. We arrived at the time that the British were being taken back to England by the small boats that came in there. There were two big, huge rows of British soldiers being taken on, there were big ships there, there were airplanes flying, and, and you looked over the dunes and you had tanks fighting between the dunes and the city of Dunkirk. It was just, it, you tried to walk in sand, or even tried to run in sand. It was just very, very bad. We took refuge in a nursing home, which was right on top of the dunes, and stayed there until all the British were gone. And that was something else, really, to see. They kept going, back to La Panne, and across from there was a small resort. The homes were mostly used in the summertime, but they'd been opened up to let people take refuge inside. When they wake up the next morning, the Germans have arrived, bringing with them huge trucks. On each truck, the name of a Belgian city, Liège, Brussels, Antwerp, they're being taken home. And what they saw when they get home to Liège was not at all what they expected to see. The house was standing there. Nothing had happened. We went in. The pot of soup was on the stove. And my mother said, see? If, if we had stayed here, nothing would have happened. <laughs> and, and she was right, of course. And we had spent three weeks going through that episode, Odyssey, which was unbelievable, and witnessed some unbelievable things, okay? So sometimes you have to listen to your mother. <laughs>
but, but you know, those, those were experiences that were so totally unnatural that you never forget them. They, they mark you for life and you just keep remembering that. And of course, we were young. Jacqueline and I were young and personally, uh, I thought things were terrible, but I never felt that anything was going to happen to me. And I think that's just part of being young. I don't, I don't think you worry about too much. Belgians are put on rations. Regine says Germans had spent all their means in Germany to build their army, and the economy wasn't good. So the Germans started buying everything they could out of Belgian stores. She says Germans printed paper for money which had no value, but the Belgians had to sell them whatever they had. Then the Germans put quotas on farmers who had to produce a portion of their production just for Germany, with little left over for Belgians. You had very little coffee, you had very little butter. Potatoes, which is a staple in Belgium, you know, French fries and all that good stuff. Uh, very little, uh, they produced rutabaga for the population, and, and I won't even look at a rutabaga. <laughs> and it, I mean, the meat was maybe half a pound in a month, I mean, very little. Uh, many people in those days smoked. Women didn't get any rushed at all, just the men. <laughs> and, uh, and you could take like a hundred gram, which is nothing, and make your own cigarettes, or you could get 20 cigarettes a month. I mean, it was My father, who was not supposed to smoke, shared his ration with me. <laughs> but anyway, life just kind of resumed slowly and except for hearing the German, Germans marching down the streets with their boots and singing their German songs and, you know, things just were very, very unhappy and of course any sign of resistance was immediately, you were put to the wall and shot. I mean, and there was resistance building up. For Jews, Regine says the first year was eerily quiet. But in the second year, they started passing some restrictions. First, a curfew. Jews were supposed to be home by 7 p.m. at night and couldn't leave their house until 7 a.m. the next morning. Fast forward to January 1942. Regine is in her last year at college prep school when she learns she will not be finishing her schooling. Jewish children are not allowed to attend school anymore. Regine says they were told that German leadership would form Jewish schools with Jewish teachers. That didn't happen. She didn't get her diploma. Then came the Yellow Stars. No matter when we went out, on our outer garments, and they couldn't be pinned on, they had to be stitched on so that we could never take it off. I had a cousin who was getting married and they couldn't have a regular wedding, so they had a home wedding. They had a pretty large home, and they had a big, great big room downstairs, and they set up tables. The wedding took place in the home, and the dinner, there was a big dinner for the people who attended. 
they probably were 30 people there, mostly family members and close friends. In the middle of the dinner, there was a relatively small door that opened up in this room. We looked up and there were two SS officers standing in the door frame. The room now is so still. Everyone is drawn in on every word. You can almost feel us all holding our breath as Regine continues. We had no idea why they were there. They were just very relaxed and they were just breaking up the whole thing by just being there. Their excuse was that they wanted to see all our outer garments and make sure that we had the star sewn onto the coats. And of course, that just took care of everything. And then they left. They just took great fun in doing something like that. The whole room is relieved the story didn't end differently. We don't have to say it to know it. German police then started sending notices to people 16 and over to present themselves at the police stations. Regine says they were being ordered to go and work in Germany, meaning they were picking up people to eventually exterminate them. Her sister got a notice. She never went. Regine says her family was blessed with good neighbors in those years, Christian and Jewish. And one of those neighbors did something that would likely save their lives. That neighbor put Regine's mom in touch with her daughter's school, a Catholic school at a convent not far from Liège. That neighbor also had a home in Spremont, south of Liège. She told them to go live there and hide. The mayor in the town was part of the underground resistance. He created ID cards for the family with fake names, free of the new stamps that would identify them as Jewish. Plus, they'd need the ID cards if they wanted to eat. That was the only way you could get rations. Regine takes on a new identity. René Nogis was very close to my last name because you always felt if you were caught, you know, and if you chose something totally different, you might mess up. Soon, Germans come looking for her family. Her parents flee to a hunting lodge deeper in the middle of the woods on private hunting grounds. Thankfully, the resistance was never far. Somebody from the farm had a little horn, and they would blow the horn to warn my parents. And my parents would leave the chalet and go back deeper into the woods. And when the Germans left, they blew the horn and they went back to the chalet. And then Regine and Jacqueline go to school, where the mother superior and a priest are the only ones who know who they really are. I joined my sister and wife, and we became two of the regular students with the other students, and we had to follow every rule 
that the other children followed, which was perfectly okay. We went to Mass every morning. I was older than anybody else there. I had been, I had had much more schooling than anybody, and so did my sister. The, uh, the high school portion of that school t was more geared to commerce and business classes. So we learned to type. There was also a home ec section. I learned to iron men's shirts very well and starch the collars well and I learned to starch linen and I learned all kinds of things. I, all things I enjoyed but I was still bored most of the time. I had had six years of Latin before I came to the convent. I was probably, and I'm not going to discount the nuns, let's give them credit, but I, I, the priest and I were probably, I probably understood more of it than anybody else. <laughs> the girls spend two years there. When holidays rolled around, like Easter and Christmas, they had to leave school just like all the other students to avoid suspicion. They'd take the train to get to where the rest of their family was, but it was always a risk. Two officers would come up and everybody had to open their suitcases to see if you had any uh, extra stuff, you know. To so here's Jacqueline and I with false names and we are 16 and 17 and 15, and we have to keep our cool while these German officers are standing there. And one time the lights for some reason dimmed in the wagon and they were standing there with their pistols wrong. But that happened twice to us in two years. But I can assure you we were scared. But we somehow, the grace of God, we, we made it through. It's now 1944. Rumors are floating around that the Americans are going to land somewhere. And the Belgians were expecting it. Regine says bombings had intensified. One day, she turned her head to the sky from where she stood in the courtyard of the convent and counts 700 planes flying overhead. She had to stop counting just because her neck hurt. A few days later, they get the word. The Americans have landed. Mother Superior tells Regine that she and Jacqueline need to be with their family, so they make it to the lodge, but it would be another few months before everything changed. And one day in September, we got up and we heard this roar, sounded like a hundred airplanes flying overhead. So we went out into the uh, yard and there were no airplanes. So suddenly, since there were no airplanes, we were looking around and we realized that there was something going on on that road. So uh, my sister and I looked at each other and we said, well, let's go see what that is. <laughs> so we ran down the woods, across the creek, went up the other side and came out on the side of the road. And there was a convoy. There were trucks and trucks no tanks, but trucks and jeeps and trucks, and uh, we didn't know who they were. We knew they weren't British because the British had flat helmets and these guys didn't have flat helmets. They weren't French. They weren't Russians because they had red stars on their trucks. And, one, and suddenly came a jeep 
that had a German officer strapped onto the hood, <laughs> sp spread eagle, and we said, oh, it's the American. <laughs> and we were so overjoyed, we just could not stand it. And uh, we just stood there and just, ah, oh, couldn't believe it. And they were just yelling, not yelling, but waving, you know. One of them threw a cigarette at me. <laughs> and of course, you, you know, I was smoking in those days. I started smoking. So I never forget it. It was a Chesterfield. <laughs> the Germans are in absolute disarray. Regine's family goes back to Liège, but war isn't over. Germans keep bombing. And back at home, Regine is bored. So she goes to look for a job. The first job offer they gave me was going to the front lines with a company because I could speak all three languages and I could interpret. And my parents said, absolutely not. <laughs> Instead, she takes a job at the American Quartermaster Depot, which has supplies for 100 companies. There, she's hired as an interpreter in the legal department. And... Uh, I was also head of a typist pool, and that's where I met my husband. <coughs> and that's, that's about the end of that story. <laughs> and that is Regine's story, at least part of it. Regine and her husband moved to America. They start a beverage distribution business, one that her children and grandchildren are running now. But some people in the audience have questions. Did you stay in touch with the mother superior? Do you go back to Belgium? What happened to the rest of your family? One little girl even has a request. Hey, can I have your autograph, please? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Regine says she did stay in touch with the mother superior, and she goes back to Belgium fairly regularly. And during her last visit there two years ago, there is just one nun left who remembers the sisters who were around in Regine's time as a student. Regine tells the crowd that the day she became an American citizen was the best day of her life in the U.S. And at the end of the questions, and before Fran thanks Regine for her time, Regine leaves the room with some final thoughts. Well, unfortunately, what I've been through is still going on all over the world. And uh, it, it's unbelievable, you know, that, that people don't learn and that the same mistakes occur over and over again, and people are easily influenced in times of hardship sometime by leaders that, and I'm not making any connections here, but, <laughs> uh, who, uh, people are gullible when things are tough, and they believe anything that someone says. There are good and bad people everywhere. And you have to, you have to try to just influence people to, to think the best of everybody else. It's here that Fran thanks her. It's, this has been a, a, great, a great gift. And well, we thank, thank you. you and everyone in the room who can thank you very much. stands. I'm still wired. <laughs> Special thanks to Regine Archer, her family, Fran Ferguson, and the Salem Historical Society. 
Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. Our editor is Ben Raquelney, our news director is David Hughes, and I'm Leanna Scacchetti. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.